0: I term it knowing when to push and when to pull. I think there's a there's a time when people aren't on receive, as you used to say in cricket for, for nutrition. There's a time when they are, and around tournaments, you've got the players for an extended period of time, obviously going there to try and win it. There's, there's there is more intent around food and there's more buy into what you're doing. But I believe you've got to make sure you've got something really positive to sell. And if and if it's a truly performance viewed intervention that's really well considered that's backed up with rigorous science, but more importantly, very practically applied, and these sound incredibly basic, they're unbelievably true, that's why we always hear them, then you've got a chance on a successful intervention.
1: Hi there, it's Steve Ingham here, and a very warm welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast. Now, this podcast is all about exploring the dynamics of high performance with people who have been there and done it, people who have supported others to succeed or have explored performance concepts in real depth. And we hope that you can find something in these conversations and insights that can help you reflect and develop yourself or the people around you. And we hope that they can support and champion you to understand, relate and progress in your work and maybe the way that you live your life. Now, I'm delighted to share with you the news that we're partnering with a multi-award-winning health food and drinks company, Junius. So Junius have made a superb range of plant-based juices. They're all cold-pressed, so the nutrients aren't blitzed in the process of making them. And what I really like about Junius is Maria, the founder, has put some genuine thought into the unique formulations, some with more of a focus on protein, some with more of a focus on energy, And others blended with a caffeine shot for when you might need a healthier way for a pick-me-up. I also love the fact that they've got some really groovy names such as Fab, Zip and Rev. So I would wholly recommend giving these award-winning juices a go. And we've teamed up with Junior so that you can benefit from a 10% discount on your first order. They have a range of themed boxes with 7 juices plus 7 juice shots that you can choose based on your health goal. Or you can choose a mixed selection box to give them all a go. In the show notes of this episode, you'll find an exclusive code CHAMPIONS10. And when you go to the checkout at wearejunius.com forward slash shop, make sure you enter your code. So we're delighted to partner with Junius. Give their juices a go. They are absolutely genuine quality nutrition. In this week's episode, I speak to Chris Rosimus. Now, Chris is the head of nutrition at the Football Association, leading in all aspects of dietary provision to the England football teams. And prior to that, Chris was nutritionist at the England and Wales Cricket Board, the English Institute of Sport, and England Squash. What was fascinating about this conversation was the route that Chris followed, which you might consider somewhat unconventional, if there is a thing as a conventional route into our careers these days. Chris essentially followed his passions and interests. And What you'll hear from Chris is how through some chance, through his own connection with his experiences and through his intuition, What he did was honour the ideas that have sparked deep enthusiasm by simply pursuing them. And at the centre of all these discussions is one recurring theme that Chris has respected and protected during his career. One theme that has enabled him to actually get to a position where he's influencing a whole host of elite players and coaches at such a high level. And that theme is relationships. Well, welcome to the podcast. Chris, how are you, my friend?
0: I'm very well. Thanks a lot for inviting me on. It's great to, great to catch up.
1: Now, what are the reasons, besides the insights you have from supporting some of the top teams and some of the fascinating research you've been undertaking, one are the reasons that um, I'm interested to have a chat to you today is, is that actually you've had quite an interesting journey to the top end of performance so can you just kick us off Chris by just giving us a bit of an overview as to your background
0: yeah um, good place to start yeah I think my, my my journey to where I am I am today I definitely wouldn't consider it to be the classic route to becoming a I guess performance nutritionist uh, at any level I suppose um and as I' would only say it's not classic because at the time when I I decided I was going to be a new, become a nutritionist. I didn't know any different. But now I practiced for over ten years, it does seem to be quite a unique a unique path. So for me, I had zero interest in uh, higher education when I was when I was at school. I was a half decent student, um, but my interests were, were football in the Premier League. You know, being in the nineties, it was all con- all consuming. That's what I was interested in. So the idea of really putting energy into studies and anything after school wasn't really on my wasn't really on my radar because I always knew at that stage I was gonna I was going to leave school, no matter how well I did, and uh, go and work for my dad, who was a gas engineer because that's what my brother did. So I left school with at three Cs at GCSE level in PE and uh, in English. Like PE was my banker, had to get at least a C in that one. <laughs> but in English, what, what
1: more do you need? PE in English?
0: Yeah, well, well, exactly. So I got the three Cs and then, yeah, relatively happy with that. And then went working for my dad. And it was a modern apprenticeship as a, a gas engineer, a trainee gas engineer. So I did that for six months. And that was literally me and my dad and my brother, and my dad's work partner. And, you know, after six months, it just was not working for me. It was too young, too immature to really understand work. And I look back on it now and I think, like, my dad was really trying to help us and he had a business to run, but I guess my attitude to it didn't d- didn't understand that. So that didn't work out. And there was, there was a moment, there's a couple of moments, I guess, in this journey I look back on now that are really important. There was a, I talked to Dan about this, we're on a job and I wasn't interested and he, he made me down tools, walk into the local town centre and go to a job centre. He says, go in there, find something, because this is not for you. And I think he was just making me realise, actually... There's, you know, there's a real world out there. So I remember going in, have, into this job centre, I just remember sitting in there thinking like, like what, is, what is this it? What, what am I gonna do? Like, is this really where I'm, I'm gonna be? I didn't like it, didn't feel good about it. And then luckily, and then I went working for my uncle. So I still needed to work, I was, I was 16, 17. My uncle's a conservatory fabricator in Bolton. He said come and work for me in the workhouse. So I did six months with him making conservatory roofs. And um, I really enjoyed it. It was a great laugh, great banter with a bunch of lads from Bolton. And um, I was quite happy picking up my 75 pound a week. But during that, but I knew, deep down, I knew there was no, there's no progression there, no career. And then an opportunity came up to become um, an alarm engineer. And it was an apprenticeship. you got a Ford Focus, I remember. And I thought, yes, I always quite had an interest in cables and electrics. So I At that point I thought, okay, I need to get a job. I need a career. And I took that and I really got stuck into it. And I was an alarm engineer for six years, thought that was going to be my career. So during that time, the next big moment, which was, I guess, a a sliding doors moment, I got into football coaching by completely by accident. Friend so mine, did you have a
1: background as a, as a player?
0: Yeah, as a, uh, yeah, I still play today, or I try to, the older I get, the harder it gets. But um, I was still playing football in my local club, and my local club had a, a junior football set-up, where on Saturday mornings they would coach youngsters from seven to elevens. And my friend started doing some coaching for them, because he, he, he wanted to get into that. And he used to always ask me, come down and help me Saturday morning. But I used to say, no, not interested. I used to have my own routine, Friday night, a couple of drinks. Um, I'd wake up Saturday morning and get ready to play football. That's what I wanted to do. He used to ask me all the time, and I was totally disengaged, disinterested in the idea, until he, had, he begged me one morning and said, I've got 40 kids here. I really need some help. I said, all right. I remember saying, "This, I'll do it this one time. That is it. Did it that one time and absolutely loved it. I, was, I loved the fact that I was getting kids to do stuff I was asking them to do. And they come off saying, oh, the kids really enjoyed it. So I did it again, did it again. And then I ended up coaching and doing that for several years. So I, I realised I really enjoyed it. So I did my level one coaching badge. Really enjoyed that. I was getting quite good at it. I was getting better at what I was delivering. I was seeing people change. So players were changing their behaviour on the pitch and I was influencing them, which is, I didn't realise it at the time. And then I did my level two coaching badge because I was taking it a step further because I got a job then working for Manchester United Soccer Schools and you needed to have your level two qualification. So I was still an alarm fitter at this time. Still no thoughts of nutrition, and there was an L, there was a part of the level two coaching badge, a small half an hour section on nutrition, that really um, set you know set set my interest going. A real, real light bulb moment. So I started eating better. Because I wanted to be better at football. I started drinking Lucas at halftime. And lo and behold, I started getting a bit healthier, a bit fitter, playing better, and I really really got into that. So I then started. Taking that information back to the kids I was coaching, giving them handouts on the right breakfast, what to have during a game, etc. etc. And I remember there was a little bowling green uh, next to the clubhouse where we used to train, and it was a small, narrow pavilion. And we used to kind of clear that out, put the, put some chairs in there, get the kids in before training, and I'd say, Right, this is what a breakfast looks like. And I do a handout and I give it to the parents. But again, that wasn't me wanting to be a nutritionist, I just wanted to, these players to be better at football. But then the parents coming back saying, oh, my kid's eating breakfast for the first time and his, his, his concentration seems to be a lot better. And I thought, wow. So we ended up creating what I didn't know at the time was a nutrition curriculum. So we said to a mate, what think? What should we talk about? Bananas at halftime, oranges. Let's find some information on the internet. And I've purchased Anita Bean a sports nutrition book just to, <laughs> just to kind of give me some kind of rigor, I guess, what I was talking about. But again, no aspiration to be a nutritionist. So well, this kind of went oh. on, I got involved at my uh, new United soccer schools, and it was during that time again, at lunchtime, we coached the kids in the morning and the afternoon. And in at lunchtime while they were eating, we put a seminar on about football, something, football fitness, and one was nutrition. I used to, I used to watch our coaches deliver it. And I started actually thinking, yeah, I, I would love to be up there, deliver it, talking nutrition and educating. So at that point, uh, I remember this vividly. It was 2005, I knew I didn't want to be an alarm engineer for the rest of my life, but I didn't quite know what. I knew I could do something else, but I still enjoyed that that job. But it was that time I thought, right, I'm going to give nutrition a go. I'm really interested in learning more about nutrition. So I found a course where... Uh, let, me, let me stop, before you dive into that, yeah.
1: um, can, I, can I take you back in? Because you've, you've given me the, the full journey up to nutrition. Yeah. Before you get into that course... Can I ask you a couple of questions about about the the pre-nutrition period? I guess because once you started down that course of study, mm. you were you were then going to become or working and influencing around that area. Mm-hmm. Um, so, without getting into sort of uh, I guess amateur s- psychoanalysis about it, what were you like uh, when you were working for your dad? What were you like? At, what was what was it like to have you around? What was your pr- sort of presence and your behaviours like?
0: A good question. If you ask my dad, he might tell you something completely different <laughs> at the time. I, I, I just liked, I always remember having a really good time. In all those jobs I was in, I remember having really good camaraderie with everyone. Even my dad and my brother. We, we talk now about some of the, the laughs we, we had on the job. So we, we, drove, we drove my dad uh, crazy. We still had some really good job, uh, fun, practical jokes. And I was big into that food was always a massive part of my agenda. Cause at 10 o'clock I made sure we used to go to the local pasty shop and get a sausage and egg. So there was something there. Um, and in my role as a, again, um, at the, in the, in the warehouse in Bolton working for my uncle, it, I was always really, I always got on with everybody. And I enjoyed the fun times of the job. And deep down I kind of enjoyed the graft. Like my uncle said, you just about got good at it and then we lost you. So I always was able to look at something around, okay, how do I to make a conservatory roof? And then once I got it, I, could, I had an eye for something technical and I could apply it. So quite like the practical side of things. And again, as an alarm fitter, I enjoyed the role. But my overriding memory of it is really great camaraderie with the, with the lads. But at that point, I added a level of professionalism as well to what I was doing because I saw this as an opportunity. This is real. It's not working for my dad or my uncle anymore. Um, I've got to respect because the organization I'm working for and I, and I um, you know, was, was professional in my approach. So I guess that's how I would describe myself. Interesting to hear other people would describe me then. But um, yeah, that was that was my kind of self-assessment on it.
1: And, and do you recognise yourself now when you look back at that moment? So um, maybe I'm doing this to um, exercise some of my demons, but I, I've also left school with three GCSEs at, at grade C and had to retake and reboot my education. Uh, I, I actually look back at that person and I don't really recognise that person. Mm. Um, a, a lot happened in the, the years of my education Um do you look back and, and recognise that person or is it have you, have you changed considerably?
0: Uh, yeah, I do, yeah, I've definitely changed considerably without a shadow of a doubt. There's still elements of my personality that are, that are there rooted in me, like the camaraderie. One of the reasons I still play football and coach football is because I really enjoy that togetherness of the team, being part of it. Um, I love being part of a team of people. But my, my, I guess my application... To hard work, although I did work hard when I was on the job i 've got a totally different appreciation for for work ethic now and really pushing myself above and beyond to to get somewhere that is something that i, I didn 't necessarily demonstrate a lot when I was younger and, I, and, I, and my lifestyle back then was very very different you know i 'm a nutritionist now and i try to I try to live by being a nutritionist i 'm really into my fitness and i I try my best to eat right. Those things, I always laugh when I was, again, an alarm fitter, my breakfast was a dairy milk and a bottle of Fanta at the petrol station. It it was not, that's the area I don't recognise in myself. You know, I enjoyed fast food, I enjoyed bad food. I didn't even consider it. I just had what I wanted to eat, and it was really poor nutritional value. So uh, totally, totally different in that respect.
1: And and what was it then that sparked your interest because you mentioned change you saw change you saw influence that you could put some information in front of people or you could engage people in a certain way uh, and you've also mentioned that you were the recipient of the benefits of quality nutrition yourself mm. what, what was the what was the stimulus for you to then think this is what I want to do then
0: the, the first change was myself Without a doubt. So, having listened to the bits on football nutrition and the the FA coaching badge I was doing, I just started to eat breakfast. You know, I, I knocked i am the Fanta and the dairy milk on the head, and it was a bowl of cereal, some toast, and some orange juice. You know, brown bread. Thinking, right, this is well, this is the right way to go. And felt a lot better at work. I started to lose uh, a bit of weight, although I wasn't trying to lose weight as such. Before a game, I'd would have a bowl of pasta, a small thing like that. I would have a Lucasade during the game whereas I would just drink ad hoc and I used to I used to have a bottle near me wherever I was on the pitch, I used to play right full back. I put a bottle in a certain areas, so when it was a throw in, I would I would go and take a drink. And I just started to you know just feel just just play better, more energy, felt fitter, started to look a bit better and the change was in me. And then the change the, the change I guess that uh, really led me to thinking I could uh, be a nutritionist was really when I started to see the, the young players or kids Start to improve their improve their nutrition, and it was the feedback from the parents that really, I guess, motivated me. I was like, "Wow, this is great!" And then I kind of wanted more of that, and I wanted to wanted to help them even further.
1: And so, in in many ways, you like like I, uh, you've you've had to sort of come, you know, catch people up, and. The traditional route of uh, and certainly when I was going through my university education I was looking up to people because they were further ahead and I was having to catch up and that probably made me get a bit more sophisticated about learning recording information what what is success in terms of uh, your grades for example but you you mentioned that sort of classic route and um, I, I'm, I'm assuming that that's on a preconceived idea based on school, education, people at university telling you that's the way it's, it should be done. But what, do you have a sense of the value of that non-nutrition route? Do you have a sense of what what value that brings to your role now?
0: Yeah, I, I, speak, I can only speak for me personally because I was the one living this, but I, I absolutely I'm Con- convinced and believe that what's in, what enabled me to um, become, I guess, relatively effective and get in the roles that I'm in and stay in the roles was because I think of the grounding that I had in my a previous a previous life, if you like, my previous careers. You know, dealing with, when you're working in warehouses in Bolton and you're, you're an alarm fitter in the Manchester, Lancashire area and you're dealing with customers every day, difficult customers and there's problems you do a bad job and the customer complains and you've got to, you've got to function within a group of people. You you are without knowing it, you're learning all of like really rich, soft skills with real consequence because if you make a mistake in a job, you drill through a a hole and you hit a pipe and water comes out, which happens. Well, what, you know, how do you handle that? You've got to then, you know, work with the customer, be personable, be apologetic and all that and come up with solutions very, very quickly. You're going through appraisals. Every year, you don't realise that how they stand you in good stead as, as you move on. So, oh, oh yeah, learning how to interact with people and function with people and be part of a team and toe the line and be be accountable with with, with skills that I 100 percent developed in my time um, in industry as a as a, 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 a as a fitter, a trained gas engineer, conservator, roof maker, huge. Huge skills, but also dealing with different characters. Like the, the, every character, very different within the team I worked in, and interacting with them, how you operated with them, how you how you interacted with your boss, who was very tricky and demanding. Massive parallels to the world that I'm in now. And then when right. I when I become a football coach, on the, learning those principles, but through football coaching specifically around being clear and concise with the information. This is stuff I learned in my level one, level two. Be clear and concise, demonstrate well, um, be able to dominate the 1v1 was a thing we used to talk about in football. I took that and thought, right, similar principles here. I'm just going to apply that. Build rapport quick. That was a thing when I was at uh, a football coach, which build rapport quickly, instantly, because you might only see these kids for an hour and you might not see them again. So build rapport quickly. How do you do that? Get to know the names quick. The skills I took with me and I, I try my best to apply them to this day.
1: Yeah, and I think that it's an interesting perspective that I think a lot of people are, are encouraged to go deep and specialize, and specialists specialist routes are the way forward. That that in itself shows depth of knowledge, for example. But we, and we've had several guests on previously that have talked about this period in their life when they actually didn't know and they explored, and they tried, and they lived in the real world before they then perhaps found their calling. But equally, I think, given the, the situation that we're going through now in in society and this global pandemic, we're actually finding a situation where people have got to not only adapt within their roles, but potentially face perhaps for the first time in their careers a, a step change, a retrain, uh, adapt sufficiently that you then find diff- a completely different vocation. And I think a lot of people are perhaps negligent or blind to just how transferable some of these skills are across whatever domain that they're working in. Whether it's uh, whether it's gas fitting, alarm fitting, whatever it might be, to performance nutrition with the FA. Um, these are these are important. Mm elements of how we work Mm -hmm. how we get on with people aren't they
0: Mm. yeah because you're still ultimately dealing with the same thing an individual one on one it's just the information that you give is different and the understanding the personality you're dealing with will be different and if you get that at the core of it I think that that is it and if if you're able to be good in those areas and underpin it with all the knowledge that you're developing and as your confidence builds then I think you've got a chance then
1: All right, so Pick up the story then. So I stopped you about when you were um, gazing over at someone delivering nutrition courses at uh, Man United and you started thinking, I fancy doing this. So pick up the story there for us.
0: Yeah, and again, it was another moment. There's several key moments when I look back that were really important. If I didn't do this, I wouldn't be where I am now. I don't think I I would be. And it was 2005. After that that summer working with Man U, it was like summer soccer school, I went on holiday with my friends and we were in... um, Yeah, we're we're on holiday, and I was single at the time. It was just a lad's holiday, really good fun. And I remember, before I went on that holiday, I half-heartedly looked into this nutrition course at uh, a local college that delivered non-medical nutritional advice. A Level 3 diploma, very basic. But I was wanted to. I thought, yeah, let's have a look at that. And I did nothing about it. It probably reflects part of my personality back then. I was like, yeah... Yeah, I might do it, I might look at it. And I remember towards the end of the holiday, I was just sat around the pool and I just thought, I need to go and apply for this. So I just upped, got out of the complex I was in. There was no mobile phones like smartphones, 2005. Went to a local internet cafe, uh, logged on, got, the, got the, the number for the website, rang the college, and it was literally, oh, you're really lucky because we're closing, um, we're closing applications the next couple of days so I'm on holiday I can't come in to register but I 100% want to be on this course explain my situation so great as soon as you come back come in so as soon as I got back next day straight to the local college signed up registered paid my money and enrolled on this night school in um, non-medical nutritional advice where every Wednesday I I would go and learn about the absolute basics of nutrition you know like disaccharides polysaccharides various carbohydrates the, the, the basics and again it was a thing I did that to think, okay, do I like this? Is this what I want to do? Got through it, really enjoyed it. Passed my exams, but didn't ace them. Not for want of trying, but I was probably at a certain level academically. But passed the exams, and then um, the next stage. Then, so I looked into that. Next stage was um, w- would have been to a, do a degree, because at that point, at that point, I thought, do I want to be a sports nutritionist or just a nutritionist? So this is before I was a student, I just thought I'm going to write off to loads of local hospitals here, dietitians in local area, and explain a scenario and see if can get some experience, which I find incredibly hard to accept when people say I can't find experience. Well, I could find it before I was a graduate or, or an undergrad and two hospitals got back in touch with me and said, yeah, come in, shadow us for a couple of days. So I went and shadowed some dietitians in the community and in the hospital setting. And then after one day, I realised I don't want to be a dietitian at all. Did not want to do that. But I definitely knew then I wanted to go down the sports nutrition side of things. So, yeah, so then I went through that foundation year and found it very, very difficult in the early stages. But that's where I, I, I guess I was beginning to learn to change. I was knuckled down. And then we always have a laugh. This is, a, this is how unprepared I, I was for like university life or being academic in any way it was a okay cake because i didn't really we just got the internet in 2005 so email and all that was kind of new to me and the idea of usb pens i'd never needed to use one so i remember turning up to one of my first lectures with like i went i went to the local uh, some some electric store and bought some floppy disks to save my work because that's what I did in my apprenticeship. I remember turning up to save my work and looking at the computer. And where's the floppy disk? Where'd you put it? And then, all oh, right, it's USB. Like, my wife—that's one of her favourite stories. But that's how far away I, I was to ac- academia and academic work because i would not touched it for years. So it was so alien to me. But I had a very clear focus. of I need to pass this, I'm going to learn. I didn't move into halls or anything like that. I lived with my mum. I travelled in every day and they had a very single-minded approach to go there and get an education. And I didn't go to make friends. It sounds really antisocial. I just went there to learn and get from A to B to C to D because I knew I wanted to get to that fast-track practitioner programme with with, with the IS.
1: And how many attempts did you uh, make to try and get the floppy disk into the USB
0: port? (laughs) Well, it was when I looked to the other side and I... (laughs) <laughs> and I saw like USB and I thought, what's USB? I asked the teacher and yeah, I got humbled very, very quickly.
1: And and did you did you have any confidence issues at that point when you're looking around and you've got grade A students kicking about, acing all the equations and so on? Did you because you're gonna have to still move forward and progress? How how was that period in, in terms of having to go back to go
0: forward? Very very tough. Um yeah, because I was in an, an alien environment. I'd come from my close circle of friends who were all like just like me. And again, we were all like, I don't like students, didn't like that student mentality. And then suddenly being surrounded by them, I was probably very, looking back, I was probably defensive and dismissive in a way to protect my insecurities. And you mentioned a the point there about you felt like you're always looking up. I felt like I've always been looking up my whole career, even now. You know, I'm obviously much more confident and self-assured now with my experiences that I've got. But I don't think that ever will ever 100% leave me because I always feel like I'm coming from a place of, of catching up, really, because I felt like I was huge gaps. That's less and less now, I guess, the more, the more experienced and the more confident I've become. But, yeah, I, I, and that, I think that's why I was very um, focused, um, because there was probably some underconfidence in my ability so it was a case of, right, I'm here to do this. I'm here to do a job and learn and do the best I can. And so then what enabled you to get
1: the breakthrough that you needed?
0: Yeah, so the breakthrough that I had, and this again comes back to my previous time of pre-nutrition. So again, I, I, I knew where I wanted to go and I had a plan and I knew I needed experience. Very early, that was obvious to me. And to get into like the... Place at the EIS and work with elite level people. I knew I needed from an early stage to get some good experience around me. So I just utilised my coaching contacts at that stage. I'd, I'd, I was I'm coaching at Manchester United soccer schools for a number of years. So I then went back to them and said, "Look, I'm studying a degree in nutrition. Uh, this I'm trying to make a career goal. Can I deliver nutrition in the program?" And they were brilliant. And said, "Yeah, absolutely. Come and present to us." So again, put put them under pressure. Come and present your ideas. And we'll see. So I literally came in with loads of dried pasta and foods and that. And got my mum to make me all this stuff. I'm going to put this presentation together. And this is what I'm going to present. I, inf- I teach the kids. So we're going to show them pasta. They're going to feel pasta. So know, really immersive learning experiences, which, um, yeah, so looking back was was quite, I guess, quite a bold thing to do, but I was under a lot of pressure. I remember sitting in the room at Man U and delivered it to them. I said, yeah, great, do it. So they're able to deliver nutrition on the courses, build experience, build um, confidence. And then... I wrote to every single football club in the northwest, And luckily, um, a local club, Oldham Athletic, said, yeah, come in, you know, have a chat with us. So I went in and had a chat with them. I explained what I'm trying to do. They said, great, come and coach with us, be an assistant coach with the under nines and you can um, run the nutrition program through the academy. So come back with a proposal. So then that's what I did. I put together a proposal for the academy. This is all when I was a first year I got, I got onto the first year degree now. I got through the foundation year. So it was the first year, but I was 23, 24. So relatively mature, if you like. And I put together a, a nutrition curriculum, I guess, that I would, deli- I would deliver to the players before training on hydration. They'd go and train. I'd bring the parents in and say, this is what I've done. Then I'd go out and join in with the training. And that went on for two, se- two or three seasons. And then from that, I was just building up lots more experience. So again, with Man, Man United... They were going all over the world doing soccer schools in different parts of the parts of the world and because they knew my interest in nutrition they were bolt on nutrition seminars to that and i would go and deliver them so before you know i'd gone from um delivering in my local community to delivering nutrition to real kids I'm from man united soccer schools delivering nutrition program at oldham athletic to go and delivering all over the world to kids of different nationalities basic level nutrition so i had that experience interacting and in part of my knowledge with real people. But the big break was in, in after my second year, between third year, uh, between second year and third year, that summer, there was, um, I found an internship in Florida, at a place called IMG Academies. Which I'm sure you're aware of. And I looked at it and they were looking for a master's student to go out and become a nutrition intern for the summer. So I wrote off with my CV, this, that, and the other. Anyway, they got in touch with me and offered me the role because of my experience, and, in and, and their words, with the real life athlete, in inverted commas. So I had to go out there, so completely self-funded. I remember borrowing some money off my friend and um, I had to get the flights over there, pay for the visa and I had three months. And that was the, the most immersive experience as a nutritionist that I'd had at that time because you were there as a nutritionist. I was going in as a nutritionist, not a football coach, because I was trying to move away from that. I was there to be a nutritionist and it was unbelievable. So in three months, you're exposed to basketball, American football, um, swimming, soccer, tennis, different sports. And we had to deliver nutrition sessions all day, every day, to groups of, of all ages who were on these, on these, on these summer programmes. But also we had to do one-to-ones. I remember mean, it was the first time I'd done a one-to-one ever. and I remember I was, I was super confident doing group chats because I was used to that. But the first time I did a one-to-one with this young athlete who'd paid for this one-to-one session it was an hour long and i remember struggling so much like wow this is it you're the expert and you there's someone's paid money for me to improve their nutrition and that was so difficult but then i learned strategies. my mentor at the time someone called sally Parsonage, who was brilliant said this is how you structure a one-to-one this is what you need to do what's your plan when you go in and once you had that it got better and better and by the end of the three months i didn't enjoy doing the group sessions but I loved the one-to-ones because you started building rapport. You started seeing change and I found it very, very rewarding. So, but, the, and also the fact that I was on my own in in Florida, which my mum couldn't believe I'd, I went and did that, you know, because I was a small town person, but then to go and pluck myself out and go to Florida on my own was, was, it was a big deal for me to go and do. And that gave me huge confidence going into the final year. And at that point for me, I, It was a final push, do my dissertation, and then getting closer to where I wanted to be, which was working in an elite sport.
1: Okay, so it sounds like there is a relatively rapid escalation of your experience there from that that initial request of could I do this with the age group um, athletes through to a senior operation, uh, international travel, and so on. Um, But it seems as though, or if I'm hearing you correctly, that ultimately the precursor or the, 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 the key that opened the door was that you had a, a strong and reliable and trusting relationship with coaches. You had connection there that could they, could, they could offer you the pass in to say, yeah, of course, we trust you first and foremost. We know you uh, from your coaching background. If you've got specialist knowledge, fantastic. You can go and add value. It was that bit first mm. that allowed the escalation by the sounds of it.
0: Without a shadow of a doubt, definitely that got me in. You know, the talk I could talk their language. Um, I knew what they're all about. I was probably considered one of them, really. And then I was offering something extra. So from that perspective, it was a win-win for them. And it was it was a relatively um, relatively relatively simple to get that buy-in. because I had the relationship. And I built a relationship with them.
1: And so what? what when was this? How? Uh, what Give me the years for this and, and how old you were at the time?
0: So, well, I started the foundation year 2006, or so 23. And then um, come around 2009 when I had my internship with uh, in IMG 2009. So, yeah, getting off like 25, 26.
1: So, over the space of 10 years, you've worked then at the English Institute of Sport, where we uh, first met. Uh, ECB, cricket board yeah. uh, and now the FA that's quite, that's quite a rapid rise but what are the common characteristics that you've observed in some of the, the teams and demands on, on you as a practitioner, what are the things that you're consistently asked to do in that type of role well
0: from a technical perspective or a, or a general broad perspective yeah both I, I found it before that I just found it really hard my early day, you took the rapid rise. I mean, the way I got into the IS was, you know, I felt like I, was, I got the role too soon, in my opinion. I didn't feel I was ready for it. Um, what I learned with the ECB were, saw an opportunity and a, and a chance to develop me. But I remember feeling incredibly um, not, not quite ready to operate at that level. So then I was being then asked very early to have one-to-ones with established Experienced English uh, English cricket players do body uh, composition assessments with full squads of players. Put together strategies for the whole to the nutrition department. And there's the two, three specific moments I a call in the first six months of the job when I just I felt under complete a fish out of water again. The first one was when I first met the met the the cricket team and got introduced to the team, walked in the dressing room. And I felt comfortable doing that because I was used to dressing room environments, but I'd never been at a, a top elite national level dressing room to see those levels of personality. And i walking into the dressing room and I felt like all eyes were on me, whether they were or they weren't, I don't, but I felt like all our eyes, our eyes were on me and I felt enormous pressure, enormous pressure. And I didn't have enough confidence, I guess, to start talking nutrition, so I started talking football from day one. And I probably taught football with most of the players for the first few months. And that really settled me down. I established some rapport, looking back. And then, soon after that period was over, I had an injured player, experienced fast bowler. Okay, we're going to go meet him at this place. You're going to come and the lead physio. You know, what's the plan? And I remember sitting there talking to him and looking back, totally ill-prepared, didn't prepare properly. Not, I tried to prepare, but looking back, what I prepared was poor. And I, and I remember looking at this player thinking, I'm losing him here. Joe, when people are talking and the eyes glaze over? I'm, I'm, I'm losing him. And I, I pulled a, a kind of cat out of the bag and said, oh, there's one thing we can do that I've heard about. I'd never actually uh, done this practice myself. It was basically getting food delivered to a house. I said, I've heard about this. We can get this. And he went, that sounds great. I love the idea of that. So I walk away from the meeting thinking... My goodness, I'm going to have to deliver on this. So we got this food delivered to his house three times a week. He lost weight, and next minute I was considered brilliant. So go and see Chris; he'll sort you out. He can make you lose weight, and that um, spread like wildfire amongst the team, and I got some credibility. So I was I was considered a good bloke because he said in cricket, but I knew I could do that. But then I, I proved I could deliver something. I could do my job as a nutritionist, even though I was probably you know I wouldn't say winging it, but close to um, so yeah I remember finding that those are very very difficult and then I remember sitting down with a performance manager from the women's pathway and they got out this big performance plan that had sent to me previously and I just looked at it but this looks like a spreadsheet I don't understand strategy I didn't even know it was strategy and then we're asking my opinion on it and four or five people looking at me in the room and I was getting a pin drop I didn't know what to say I didn't I didn't know what to offer so I was I was under I felt under pressure from a very from the off really and I had to go away and learn very, very quickly. Cause I was considered as the lead of performance nutrition at that time. But I was heavily supported, I gotta say, I wasn't just let loose. The ECB the the D C B and the IS at that time were they saw my I was potential and they were incredibly supportive, but I still had to had to survive and I had to deliver a level. And in those early days, my best friend was um, clinical Dietetics by Louise Burke. I carried that everywhere and I had post-it notes and various bits where if someone asked me a question about something okay I'll quick look at that yeah I can give you that answer. So I was it was very very tough. Uh,
1: so I really appreciate you sharing some of your vulnerabilities there and sort of recounting a few of tales of when actually a lot of people will look at people who are operating at the top and think as though almost imagine that they're superhuman that they they've had it all in place and it just needed to to come out just needed the opportunity to to be able to to ace it when actually you're you're talking about um paddling quite quickly in a in a dangerous choppy water you're you're in front of a of a significant person and having to to really adapt and, and shift and think of different ideas and luckily you you found one and I'm sure there are probably one times and occasions I can certainly relate to many in my career where I didn't find the <laughs> cat out of the bag mm. um, and I'm hearing almost like a an imposter syndrome, i I'm feeling like I haven't made it and I'm, I'm feeling like I've got I've to try and catch up relatively quickly mm. after those sorts of experiences of thinking you can hear a pin drop I haven't got the answer, I wasn't prepared what did you do about it? What did you then put in place to ensure that you went in at a higher level of performance? Besides carrying Louise's uh, book around with you, what else did you do to prepare so that you were able to be on the front foot and not just get away with Chris is a good bloke to have around, we back him?
0: Yeah, so there was a lot of the self, self-reading. So if there was something I was faced with, I knew I could go and read it. So I, I developed something myself. So that was a simple one, but... Speaking to my my my, pe- my mentors at the time within the ECB within the IS I'd just speaking like to speak them one my challenges are uh, often of getting their opinion constantly looking for opinion looking for support I guess in those early days looking for reassurance um, and look yeah looking 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 for support looking for help and it was there for me and then soon after six months into the role I, I got put on the practitioner development programme. Which was the, the the iteration of the fast track development program, which I always wanted to be on. And then going through that then and meeting all the other, meeting other um, practitioners who were were similar to me in the first year in the job. And actually I I started to realize I'm not, I'm not on my own. Um, I'm in the same boat as everyone else. And actually I'm not doing that bad actually. So I, I started to build my confidence. You started learning techniques. About um, conflict management and the basic stuff. That you just get, I was getting more understanding of the the softer side of the role. But it was, and that was fine. And that really helped. But it was then it was the technical side that I always felt like I was playing catch up on because I felt like I had a lot of gaps in my education because I started so late. So that was an ongoing area that it was very hard for me because it wasn't my default. It wasn't my comfort zone, and I always felt I was. Um, Swimming against the tide, understanding the science in the early days, where I would then over rely on my non technical skill to get me through, and now I'm at a point now. It's great now because I now I look at the science even more now. I try and use that to underpin. Not that I was, I always tried to look at it, but I've got a deeper appreciation for it now because any information that I give, the non technical side is similar the way I operate. But if I really understand science better that gives you more confidence to to, to deliver better and that's something I've, I've really tried to evolve over the last kind of three to three years of my, of, my, of my practice as I've got more mature
1: so can I ask you to sort of just lift behind the curtain a little bit just show us behind the curtain in terms of um, some of the responsibilities that you've you have had and you've got now in terms of what how do you approach preparing a team for uh, a major competition and a major tournament, whether it's the Ashes or a World Cup, for example. H- how do you then go about that now?
0: I think looking at it, well, very performance-focused is is the, the start point now, whereas at one time I didn't really fully understand performance. Certainly I didn't 10 years ago. So now it's it's looking at what are we trying to achieve, working backwards from that, but then collaborating with the right people. So within our, for example, before the, the, the Women's World Cup in 2019, um, it was a very performance, it was, we had a very clear focus on what we wanted to achieve from a performance point of view. So we wanted the, the team to be able to um, cope with 90 minutes of football and do that for seven games if they're going to get to the final. So we knew to do that from one of the nutrition considerations. So we narrowed it right, very narrowed it very down to... Um, Adequate fueling matchday minus one and in-game fueling. How can we be better in that? So identifying where the areas are, baseline, and, and then baselining how how good how good the players are at actually delivering themselves to the field in in an optimally fueled state, and then doing something about it. So that's a, a that's probably the best example. It's looking at what we're trying to achieve, narrowing the focus down to what we can genuinely. Um, influence, and then putting in strategies that can be delivered consistently when I'm not there, because I'm not always a key traveller with the team. I'm heavily involved in the preparation phase, but didn't go to that World Cup. So how then can we en- really influence that MDT, coaches, everyone involved in that, to buy into that message, to deliver it practically on the ground every single game? So that's how I of That's the blueprint I, w- I would take for any 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 um, major tournament. And, forward.
1: and and if, um, if you're going into a sort of tournament phase, can I assume that there's an element of conformity or control that you have over the players' diets, etc. So that you can talk to the, the catering staff at the various hotels, for example. You There's only a few things that are going to be put in front of them or that you could potentially uh, restrict. Do you, do you end up getting sort of player conformity going up because you're on camp and you're in performance mode, mm. um, or how do you, or do you still get that sense of well, I don't like this or that or the other, that individual preference that you have to attend to in a squad setting?
0: Without a shadow of a doubt, individual preference and habitual uh, routines, the nutrition will always be there, whether it's a motivated performance phase or not. So that is something that is is is, is you have to be aware of that. And that's only gonna become greater the more knowledge the player gets, and also the more influence the outside influence there is from um, media, for example. So to percent understanding what the individual the individual likes to likes to eat, but also it's being smart enough and I term it knowing when to push and when to pull. I think there's a there's a time when people aren't on receive, as he used to say in cricket for, for nutrition, there's a time when they are. And around tournaments, you've got the players for an extended period of time, not just 10 days and sending them back to clubs where the influence is then diluted and it's it, it, the more under the club's influence. And you've got the I guess, for a tournament. We're going into a tournament, obviously going there to try and win it. There's, there's, there is more intent around food and there's more buy into what you're doing, but I believe you've got to make sure you've got something really positive to sell if that's the the right way of terming it and if and if it's a truly performance viewed intervention that's really well considered that's backed up with rigorous science but more importantly very practically applied and these sound incredibly basic they're unbelievably true that's why we always hear them then you've got a chance on a successful intervention and then you've got influence but it's a case of bringing the you know 18 it was 18 months of education uh, leading up to the to the world cup and then a real specific focus on this particular area which we believe was 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 gonna help push and make the difference and it's how we then sold that to the team the players and everyone everyone associated with it and then back to your All point. Right. sorry to, back to your point yeah. yes then you can influence the menu so we have performance chefs we work very very closely with and, you know, not day, not every single day should be the same during a performance week leading up to a game. There's certain days you want them to eat more fuel, so you adapt, but you start to periodise the options. But that has to come with education. So if you're going to remove various proteins and put more pastas on at various times, players need to understand why, so they'll gravitate towards that. Otherwise, as we know, players will tend to eat the same food more, more often than not. And then what products you put out at various times are all driven by... The strategy that you believe in, and then it's bringing them along along the way with it. So, you use the phrase
1: there: so having something positive to sell, um, and the, that's that's such an interesting phrase from the point of view that it's got to be positive, right? You know, because a lot of the basics are boring and mundane and the same old, same old, um, and and I suppose to a certain extent, nutrition. Or training practices, or some psychology, could could also be negative in the sense of don't do that, don't do the other, don't do this. Whereas actually, you're you're framing it in the sense of do this. Take take the opportunity that this is a this is a positive experience. Is that what I'm hearing?
0: Yeah, very much so. And that, but I think that that positivity only comes through you and your, 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 your team around you giving serious thought into what you're going to apply. So the, the, the this particular strategy that we put in place was took a lot of deep planning, sitting on my own, right, looking at it, looking at the science. How does that science then, with the common, the common knowledge we know around fuel and carbohydrate, combined with the existing practice that we've got, how does that translate? How do we do that? And that takes a lot of thought, a lot of iterations, versions. And to get to that point there where, you're really like so confident, and you know, for, for me, first and foremost, so confident that this was the, the right thing to do. And then it can only be portrayed as something positive, and I think more importantly, authentic. Like, that's you can if you're trying to sell something that you don't necessarily believe in, how authentic will you be with it? And I think the way I try and do it, it's if I'm really excited by it, and because I love football and I love fueling footballers, I'm incredibly invested in that and it excites me and i want to say this is what we can do this is what i know this is what this is this is this is the, the this is could be the difference mm. okay so it's,
1: it's about bringing that that i'm hearing that preparation and that rigor and that the the test review adapt the the strategy and then bringing it to to bear with your enthusiasm but you've a couple of words there you've you've mentioned selling a few times um so talk to me about your your approach or your thoughts because selling is often a bit of a dirty word isn't it but actually you're being sold on an idea you're trying to influence somebody's behavior to change so that so that they can ha- lead a richer life they can achieve their performance goals etc um so talk to me about that mechanism that you how you how you go about convincing somebody to go about uh, adapting and changing what is actually quite an emotive thing food
0: yeah, so I've had no specific um, kind of training around that area, which is one of the areas I'm looking at in my thesis. Like, how can we call ourselves nutrition coaches or behaviour change experts when we haven't had any genuine training in it, other than our experiences? So I think it comes back to what down back down to what I was saying a few moments ago. I think that it, it comes from a place of identifying an area that you believe can improve an aspect of someone's habit or strategy where there's, where there's, where there's a gap, for example, and if you can show how that gap can be filled in, you know, relatively simply, and more importantly, what it will lead to in terms of performance, then I think straight away, the sell is relatively easy because it's coming from a place it's coming from a place that's genuine and it's coming from a place that's that it ov- can obviously help the player so i'm not sure what the formula is there but it's it's coming from, from a place that's really rigorously underpinned and sound and filling a, a performance, performance a performance gap and if you can articulate that you know you can anyone can identify a gap Anyone can identify what we need from performance. But I guess it's how you then articulate that in that one-to-one interaction with the player and the group interaction, because you don't always get the luxury of a one-to-one. And, in, and with the group, that's just as important. How can you then present a concept that's taken into consideration you know, glycogen storage Um and present a concept to a group in 10 minutes, because you might only get 10 minutes at the start of a camp to deliver this. And then time is so hectic on camps, you don't get that. So how can you re- how can you really pull all that together? I really like putting together presentations that are really nice looking and slick that I think are going to have the maximum impact in that 10 minutes. How then do you then follow that up? The plan that you give the player. So it's all it's like an A to Z, where you start from the plan, Z to the player. Then the information and the plan that you deliver to the player... What does that look like? Is that just your standard Word document? Is it just a nice infographic? Or is it something that's really nice that they can feel in the hand that's, that's a, a little bit of budget spent on it that they can open and feel and look at it and think, before they've read the content, wow, that's impressive. So getting them to really value something so that and they can see if there's that much energy and effort gone into it, that, okay, well, let's give this a shot. And if you get them closer, you know, you don't think you're going to get everyone dancing exactly to the tune that you want. But if you push the majority of them on, which I'm convinced that we did before that World Cup, then we're in a better place than we were 12 months ago.
1: And how much of your role currently or previously in a, in other top teams, how much of that is managing myths or, as it's increasingly termed, bro science of, of just here's a new fad that that's kicking about and you're having to fend that off I suppose there's a bit of a byproduct. I think sometimes when you when you initiate interest and enthusiasm into a subject then people start reading Mm -hmm. and they start researching or they start going to popular sources when actually it's not that legitimate or even aligned to performance how much of that of that role is is for you
0: It's part of the role, without a shadow of a doubt, and it will never go away. It's not something that you're dealing with on a weekly basis. Um, A lot of it can be based on what's popular on TV at that time. So if there's a a big push in the media about a certain element of nutrition, then um, questions like that will come your way. Players will want to adopt their their nutrition accordingly. Various products that people might read about that they like that, that sound fantastic, a lot of those do come your way, so yeah, they, they do happen. It's part of the job. It's part of the. It's not a part of the job that I uh, particularly enjoy, because I think it's. It, it, I see it quite. can detract from what you're really trying to focus on, what you think is right. But it's a part of the job, whether you like it or not, and you've got to try and. Um, I wouldn't say fend it off, but you, you've got to try and you've got to. You've got to be open enough to listen to any any, any of these new things that come your way, because you just never know. There might be something in it. You can't be that dismissive and, I guess, that arrogant. But I think it's how it creates more work for us because we have to then critique it. So if someone's going to recommend a product to me, okay, then there's lots of references with these products. I'm prepared to read every reference. I don't want to, and it's not my default. Going back to, what, 10 years ago, reading a scientific paper, not my idea of fun. And it isn't my idea of fun now. However, in the lead role that I'm in, if I'm going to make a decision on something, you have to read every single paper. There's a great there's a great process out there that come up from Liverpool, John Moores, uh, called Paper to Podium. It's helping you translate um, kind of academia into practice and there's a grading system, you use tools like that. And actually then you can take a step back and take your bias out of it and make a more um, neutral, informed decision on it. And I think that's then, if you go back and explain that um, to the player or whoever it is, who's who wants to try a certain thing at least you're going back with something that's that's balanced you're listening you're not showing that you're totally closed because i'm I'm genuinely not and i think that way whatever outcome you get to it's going to be a more positive one because you know you've still got a relationship to maintain with those people
1: Hmm. interesting and so tell us a little bit about some of the research work that you're doing because i think this is fascinating obviously i was one of the interviewees am i allowed to say that actually
0: well if you consent to it of course
1: i can I can consent to admitting to being interviewed for your research and it really sparked my interest and and actually probably led to to us having this conversation today about you starting to try and capture and understand and and get some sense of clarity as to what some of the defining characteristics of of successful performance nutritionists are have and and also then um I think the application potentially is is useful for us all to reflect on performance staff, or even in in wider worlds that that tune into the podcast. So, what was the process, and and lead us that then through to what you found?
0: Yeah, so I've just submitted it actually, so it's, it's, yet, it's yet to be published. Um, but yeah, I'm at the, I've just just submitted my final version of it, and ultimately, what I'm set out to to explore was what, can, what makes an effective performance nutritionist who operates at the elite level? And that was born out of looking at my own experiences that I've shared with you today. It's kind of my journey of, of getting to where I am. What what skills did I pick up and learn directly or indirectly along the way? And trying to get a sense for how is that, what's the perception of, of, of effective nutrition through the, the eyes of other nutritionists and colleagues who I've dealt with so I interviewed 15 individuals for this piece of work, um, you know, senior nutritionist, junior nutritionist, a couple of athletes, MDT colleagues like yourself, and just had a, had a chat and tried to figure out when effective work has been has been present, what did that look like, what were some of the characteristics that, that you observed and, and vice versa. And then also digging a little deeper into looking at the, the training pathway that currently exists for performance nutritionists. So what non-technical skills are currently being taught at undergraduate and postgraduate level, what work experience placements are available Do some universities, do one, both or, or none of that. Um, there's a governing body for sports and exercise nutritionists called the Sports and Exercise Nutritionist Register that we, we're all part of, and they do a great job in quality assuring our industry. We're also looking at their role and um, what's their role in helping facilitate these kind of non-technical areas, if if any role at all, whatever value do they potentially add Um, I know they approve some postgraduate and undergraduate nutrition courses so what value does that approval offer the students and then actually culminating in all these experiences and kind of accrued knowledge personal knowledge and what I found from the science and then looking at suggested kind of coaching frameworks that performance nutritionists might be able to reference because I don't think there's any specific Coaching frameworks delivered um, out there available for performance nutritionists specifically um, to use in the realm of elite performance. We tend to use coaching models like behaviour change, like COMBI, and dietitians have various frameworks to reference in their manual of dietetic practice. And it's almost looking at is there a gap here? And based on the information that I've found within this research, some suggested a uh, coaching uh, coaching framework that we might be able to to uh, to might be able to be developed. Could, could you talk us through that? Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's, it's looking at, I think, you don't work with same age group players, nutritionists. You might work with a 15-year-old all the way to a senior. So what does learning kind of look like at each level of that? There'd be different types of learning outcomes that you would want to achieve with a 15-year-old versus a senior. So then structuring that coaching um, framework based on, you know, education outcomes. And they're actually looking at some of the stuff that we found from the science from the from the research around some of the how do we how the nutritionist may need to operate or kind of behave with these individuals. So such as um, build and rapport quickly, it would be a key coaching point with any any group that you're with but also then building rapport maintaining re- rapport if you're working with senior team over a period of time so if it's a 15 year old you see on one session build rapport instantly and quickly but if you're working with a senior over a period of time build rapport maintain rapport it's then use points in that within choices around scientific language when do you need to use it do you need to use it at all with the younger generation how then do you weave that language in to underpin at a senior level, and everything in between. So it's trying to. This is. It's just a how I would see it. It's how I see the world based on the information that I've, I gathered from the the thesis, with some prompters and suggestions of considerations that you might want to consider when entering dialogue with athletes of various ages.
1: And um, and what's the, what are the characteristics that you found? What's what's emerged uh, about how a practitioner, how a member of performance staff acts, what are the behaviours, what are the things that are consistently uh, ar- arisen in your discussions?
0: Yeah, so the the, co- the most common um, traits of, I guess, perceived traits of effective um, practice in nutritionists were ones that kind of we've all talked about today, which is you know, encouraging. It was being able to adapt communication style was it a key Right at the top. Um, being able to build rapport and build relationships. Having self-awareness. And when I look at that, I consider that as right. For pushing and pulling is what I talk about. Being self-aware enough to know when to impart your advice and when, and when to pull it back. Um, being able to foster trust. You know, the, the, the classic, the absolute classic um, non-technical skills that we um, all hear about and read about were what our cohort perceive and witnessed in most effective practice and then the flip side of that it was um but also the positive one was like having the balance between technical skill and non-technical skill and knowing when to use that on the flip side of that it was the kind of when it's not been so good it's just been the opposite you know, unable to develop relationships um i guess too evangelistic with certain certain views lack of rigor lack of underpinning so the the opposite of, of what effective looked like it sounds incredibly basic, but it's it's it was great to get to that point. So, okay, this is what people believe is what they what they see. Well, it sound
1: it might sound basic and fundamental, but it's a it's a strong reminder from a rigorous process of, I presume, some sort of thematic analysis that you've undertaken. Yeah. But but that you you're not getting in a room with everybody and having a good old chat about it, and they're all descending on agreement and consensus you, you've interviewed these people independently mm. albeit have operated in similar environments and perhaps had network chats along the years mm. but but ultimately you're pulling together independent thought and conclusions and summaries and large observations that you know it's, we had this sort of conversation with Stephen Saylor recently on the podcast about looking for an overtraining marker we can go looking all, for all sorts of biomarkers. Over, we've done this for 30 years, but we end up coming back to how do you feel? And the same is true about who do I want on my team? And it, it very rarely mm. comes down to the disruptive genius mm. <laughs> um, who just comes in and makes, makes a noise. One issue fanatics or who's adamant or it will humiliate people with their technical, scientific operational knowledge and then make f- people feel rotten. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. It comes down to the basics of human interaction, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, without a doubt. And that's what kind of jumped out at me. It's it's that when you're dealing with individuals one to one ultimately it's it's how do you go about it?
1: And so I mean you've talked a little bit about styles that you've you've worked with and if you think about the research work that you've undertaken and the things that come out as consistent characteristics, if you're talking to colleagues, if you're talking to uh, top coaches, England managers, etc., top players, you know, what's at the forefront of your mind uh, when you go into that type of interaction? How do you set yourself up for excellence uh, when you go into to influence somebody?
0: Just purely now speaking from a, a personal Perspective on how I operate. If I'm, let's say you're going to go and present a certain intervention that you want to do at a tournament, and you're going into this MDT with a head coach and everyone's there. The first part is you've got to be absolutely 100% convinced uh, in what you're about to say and absolutely prepared. And that comes back from experience. In the early days, I go back to cricket. In the early days, totally ill prepared. Asked to present something, you don't fully understand strategy, you don't fully understand performance, and you don't necessarily sell your message um, as positive as you would like. So if you're going to go and try and influence and get your... Ultimately, ultimately you, you want to get your your discipline um, used by the user. So to do that, you have to be really short and incredibly well-planned, um, gone through various iterations to make sure you're at a point where I believe this is right and then you can deliver it. Because that, that, for me, I, I need that level of confidence to go into that room so I can speak with confidence and not feel embarrassed because it's quite obvious when you don't know. I think for me, you don't know what you're talking about. So there's that. And then it it comes down to the basic kind of human behaviours and understanding around respecting the people around you straight away. And you're not going to... It's naive for me to think if I present a strategy that 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 strategy I presented will be the one that's necessarily agreed and is delivered. You know, that's a great chance then because you go... At minimum, if the. You're going to come out and refine it. There'll be some areas of that that they will see differently. So it's it's going in very open, going in very very prepared, very open, well practiced, well rehearsed what you're going to say, and then using kind of basic um, basic behaviour and, and respecting the room that you're in. I think that's really important. You know, you, I'm a nutritionist going into a technical room where it's about the football and it's about medicine and it's about fitness. And they're, for me, really, really important. And there's a small part here, so it's nutrition, so it's understanding my place there, and then when it's my time, delivering something that I think is is of value.
1: Yeah, I like that in terms of the, the feeling convinced, because that then may, means that if there's any sense of doubt, people will sense it, even if it's just nuanced in body language or tone or, or response to a question. I, but also then having broad perspectives as a reference point that you can default to if someone says i don't agree because of this you then have got a reference point of the players football performance yeah. uh, mm-hmm. look, looking after and care and duty of care uh, that you can refer to but ultimately to negotiate or compromise and adapt some of your strategies so that it it fits and lands mm-hmm. fantastic mate i'm um, I just love the positivity that you kind of bring to your work and, and that sense of, of just priority that you're applying, the interactions that you have with other people. And I think that's just so critical, not only at the moment and historically that you've captured this in your research work, but it's um, it's got to be increasingly important, hasn't it? As the world changes and adapts and we're all a bit uncertain about as to where we're going. You, you, you want to pull tight as a team and know that, that the people you've got around you <laughs> are, mm-hmm. are going to be a positive influence and that you can have challenging conversations with them and, and drive forward as a unit as opposed to just feeling as though you're, you get entrenched into your own disciplines. I, I can only see the characteristics that you've uncovered through your research and that you've exhibited through your practice as being increasingly important and respected.
0: I completely agree, particularly now, because obviously ways of working now are, are different than how it used to be six months ago. So whereas you would have a certain template of how you want to influence, you might not get that opportunity because due to COVID, you might have limited access with environments that you at one time had unrestricted access. So straight away, how do you adapt to that? Are you, you, know, are you comfortable with that? How comfortable are you with your change changing your your ability to influence, you can still influence, just takes a bit more thought now and how you're going to do it. And I think understanding and focusing more on the relationships now, probably more important than ever. So we've, we've got camps going on, but we're not allowed at the camps because of COVID restrictions, but the food has to still be delivered. So all the interactions remotely, you're going above and beyond uh, in your communication and going, you know going making sure you've, you've ticked all the boxes more, than, more so than you would previously. It's just as important. ultimately this the food has to has to be at a certain level Hmm.
1: all right last question for me then chris uh have you have you ever gone for a dairy milk fanta breakfast since starting your nutrition
0: (laughs) (laughs) i can honestly say no (laughs) i left that i left that world behind but i can't say i've not been tempted from time to time
1: so it might it might happen one day just just for old times sake just to see <laughs> yeah. just see the dip that you have afterwards and so well, you can remember it <laughs>
0: the, maybe if i've got a game the next day and i need to carb i would could be my justification <laughs>
1: <laughs> fantastic really appreciate you coming on chris thank you so much
0: no problem appreciated it great to chat and uh, thanks for having me
1: I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Chris. You can follow him on LinkedIn, look up Chris Rosimus. If you want to follow us on Twitter, then you can do so at support underscore champs and look us up on Instagram and LinkedIn at supportingchampions. Don't forget to benefit from the exclusive discount for the handcrafted award-winning Junius juice range using the discount code CHAMPIONS10 to get 10% off your first order. Click on the link in the show notes or visit wearejunius.com forward slash shop to take a look at the full range where you can purchase a box of juices tailored to your health goals. And you can follow me at ingham underscore Steve. Now, if you're looking for some coaching support or some virtual team development to help to support you go through these challenging and uncertain times in work, life or sport, then look at supportingchampions.co.uk forward slash coaching hyphen mentoring or drop us a note at inquiries at supportingchampions.co.uk. And there you can sign up for a free consultation to explore which package is right
0: for you.